Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre. And I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome, dear listeners, to Season 10, Episode 5. I'm your host, Otis Jari, and in this episode, I'll be performing three tales to terrify you, courtesy of Dan Weatherer, about eerie initiations, authorial assassinations, and vicious vengeance. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So, lock your doors... Turn your lights down low and settle in. The show's about to begin. <laughs> Ever spend a little time with friends when you were younger who would dare you to try something? Maybe it's for fun. Maybe it's to be part of the cool group. It's usually something dangerous, something scary. But it's all in good fun, right? At least it's supposed to be. Dan Weatherer brings us the first story in our collection, where we will find out exactly how much truth there is to the old rumors about a supposedly haunted subway. 
Without further ado, I present to you Cotton Face. Vastwell Subway was a pedestrian tunnel which ran beneath the busy A37, linking East Lidford with the West. A notorious accident black spot, few ever chose to use it, preferring to risk life and limb crossing the road above. Indeed, many fatalities have been recorded at the site, not all of them the result of road traffic accidents. Vestwell Subway also formed part of the initiation into the Steelers, the village's only gang, a gang Matthew had wanted to join since first hearing of their antics on the playground as a young boy. Now, faced with the gaping mouth of the subway, Matthew was forced to question that desire. I'm sure you've heard the story, said Callum, peddling his bike in wide, lazy circles around Matthew. But I'm going to tell you what really happened anyway, just for kicks. He pulled up alongside Matthew and grinned. I won't leave out the gory details either. I know all I need to, said Matthew a little too quickly panicking in case his fear had transmitted in his voice. If it did, Callum either chose to ignore it or add to it further. The thing with the story of Cotton Joe, began Callum, the name sending a shiver of cold the length of Matthew's spine, is that it's all true, every last word of it. Francis frowned. Up until this point, he'd busied himself with his bicycle, having turned it upside down, balanced it on its seat, engrossed in rotating the pedals and watching the back wheel spin. He did this often, and when asked as to why, he simply replied that he was checking. As to what for, he wouldn't say. I asked my mom, and she said it weren't. They all say it weren't, snapped Callum, annoyed at the interference of his lieutenant. Of course they do. It's all about house prices or something. No one would want to move here if they knew the truth, so they all make it out to be just a story. He fixed his eyes on Matthew, the grin returning to his face. But it ain't. He resumed his laps, this time slow and meandering. I heard it said that he was a carpenter's mate, back when they made stuff from wood in the village. Big fella he was, too. Matthew flinched at the curse word. Some said he was as close as uh, being a giant as you could get. Of course, no one would go near him except for this one young boy. They say he was a bit thick. Cotton-faced, not the boy. And he didn't have many friends, so he and the boy would spend time together, walking in the village and the woodlands over there. East Lidford was just a few farms back then. Of course, the subway wasn't here, but the path was. Callum pulled up alongside Matthew, closer this time. They found the boy lying there, said Callum, pointing into the depths of the subway, or what was left of him. Of course, as the kid was seen with Cotton Face, he was the only suspect. Had to be him, right? Matthew held his breath. He knew what was coming. This was the part of the story he hated the most the part which fueled his nightmares and caused his imagination to draw pictures in the shadows. 
The villagers, they set the dogs on him, thinking they'd see justice that day, continued Callum, unabated. Gott and Joe fought them off and broke their necks one by one before retreating into the woods over there. Tell them why they call him Cottonface, said Francis, transfixed by the rotations of his bicycle wheel. I'm getting to that, snapped Callum. Those that saw him running into the woods said his face was torn to pieces like a real proper mess. His eyes hung popped and empty from their socket, his lips gone, likely dissolving in the belly of one of the dead dogs. Callum leaned closer to Matthew, his voice barely a whisper. Those that have seen him since say he wears a bloody cotton mask to cover his face. Those that live do, anyway. Callum remained close to Matthew's ear, his breath, sweet-smelling, like pear drops, and warm, did nothing to dispel the goosebumps which covered Matthew's flesh. He shuddered involuntarily. Satisfied that his work was done, Callum resumed his laps once more. You know what we need to do to join, right? shouted Callum, picking up speed. Matthew nodded. He hoped, harder than he'd ever hoped for anything in his life, that now was not the time for the initiation. To join the Steelers, you got to walk through Vestwell Subway after dark, said Callum. Matthew nodded again, alone. I know, said Matthew, his voice quiet and low. We'll watch, won't we, Francis? Francis righted his bike and nodded. He wore a faraway look on his face, a look that troubled Matthew. Secretly, Francis recalled his time in the subway, a time he would never be able to forget as long as he lived. He didn't envy Matthew having to go into the subway. Francis knew that he wouldn't do so ever again. Sometimes he wished he hadn't done so in the first place, though he'd never say as much to Callum. Yeah, we'll watch, but we won't come in. You go alone or you don't join. It's that simple. Matthew looked into the mouth of the subway. It ran for no more than 20 meters, and there was a slight curve to the right, which began at around the midpoint of the tunnel. More than half of the exit was visible from this side. Matthew swallowed hard. No matter what the time of day matter the season, the sky at the end of the tunnel always appeared dark and gray. They said that Cottonface had his den in the walls where the passageway curved. They said if he's going to be there, that's where he'll be. They said other things, which Matthew hoped were not true. So let's say eight o'clock tomorrow night. Your mummy lets you out past then, chided Callum. It took Matthew a moment to register that the question was directed at him. He looked at Francis and nodded. Francis, now a sickly shade of gray, looked away. Yeah, he said, his voice faltering. Eight o'clock. It was one of those rare school days which passed all too quickly, much to Matthew's dismay. Countless times he'd sat through a tedious math lesson, eyes fixed on the clock, urging the minute hand to reach twelve and end his torment, it steadfastly refusing to hurry on its way. Today, that same hand seemed to whirl 
at an incomprehensible speed, as if mocking him. Today's lessons had fallen on deaf ears. His mind had been otherwise engaged. The drone of the teacher lost amid a trail of dark thought and a state with Vestwell Subway. News stories that his young mind had paid little interest to when they first broke suddenly came back to him in startling clarity. How many was it that had been killed crossing the road above the subway? Five, six, maybe even seven that he knew of during his 13 years? He was certain that there would be more if he had had half an inclination to research the real death toll, but that was just it. He didn't want to know how many people had died on that road. He didn't want to know how many children had gone missing in that subway. Was it three or four? And it was always children that went missing in there, never an adult. He was afraid. Of course he was. He also knew that Francis was afraid, too. Francis had already suffered the ordeal, yet he was still afraid. He'd seen that look in his face, one that spoke of persistent nightmares and reluctance to even look at the subway. Francis's fear added further to Matthew's, yet what could he do? He wanted to join the gang. He had to join the gang. He wanted to be somebody. He was tired of being the short, wimpy kid that everyone picked on. If he made the gang, then those days would be behind him. All he had to do was go into that bloody subway later tonight and say the rhyme, the rhyme that nobody dared mention, not since it was last spoken in the playground that summer day five years ago. The same day, little Marcy from year three went missing. They said she was playing with her older sister by the subway. There they go again with their saying things. Them, the faceless keepers of the truth. They questioned her sister, of course, but she had said nothing of the incident. In fact, she had said nothing at all since. He was sweating now, and still the clock sped towards home time. Ignorant of his plight, meaning that tea was just around the corner, and after that, his date with the Steelers and Bestwell Subway. He realized that sitting here worrying was making him sweatier. He balled a fist and slammed it onto his desk, startling Tom, who was sitting next to him. Was he going to let the stories get the better of his nerve? After all, they were just stories, right? Cottonface wasn't real. Sure, something bad had happened a long time ago, as bad things tend to happen. To blame it on Cottonface was surely just the village's way of making sense of tragedy. Matthew began to pack his bag for home. Queasy and dry mouth, he came to a conclusion. A no-show was unthinkable. He'd probably get beat up for that tomorrow, and the day after. Perhaps the day after that, too. If he didn't turn up, then his chances at becoming a stealer would be long gone. His dad had been a stealer. Both uncles, too. No, he had to show up. Until then, it was better to face the evening one step at a time, the same way he intended to take his walk into the subway. 8 p.m., Vestwell Subway. They were all here, the entire gang out in full force, and there were more members than Matthew had at first thought. He saw faces he recognized, 
Big Allen, Tim Tootley, Mark Worrell from Barming Comprehensive, and faces he didn't. Whenever Matthew had seen them gathered before, there was usually lots of quick-fire banter between the boys. Tonight, they were dead silent. They flanked the sides of the path leading into the maw of the subway, their faces stolid. Callum stood in the entrance, his back to Matthew. "'Didn't think you were going to show,' remarked Callum, checking his watch. "'I'm early,' replied Matthew. "'Of course I'd show. You know how much I want to join.' Callum turned to face his latest initiate. "'Then you know what to do.' He stepped aside, clearing the entrance, presenting it to Matthew as a ringmaster might clear the stage to allow for the next act. Matthew took a deep breath and began the slow march toward the mouth of the subway. The strip lighting was on, meaning that he had a clear view of the interior of the passage, but the exit on the other side was shrouded in darkness. He paused at the entrance. His heart thumped in his chest. Remember... All the way through, so as we can't see you. Then coming back, you say it, hissed Callum, as Matthew passed by. You don't say the rhyme, you don't get in. Matthew nodded and stepped into the subway. As he passed inside, his ears felt as though his head had been suddenly submerged in water. His hearing became distorted, his footsteps impossibly loud. His heart beat deafening. He turned to look back at the members of the club, more to reassure himself that they were still behind him than anything else. He hoped his expression did not betray his fear. They looked on, silent and grave. As he progressed further into the tunnel, his hearing began to clear until all seemed normal again. His footsteps, though still loud, reverberated off the tiled walls, and his heartbeat steadied. The lights above him fizzed and flickered. Unperturbed, Matthew pushed deeper into the subway. As he approached the curve, he began to slow, taking another cursory glance back toward his peers. Each craned his neck so that they could easily watch Matthew and his progress. Callum stood with his arms folded and smiled. He said something that was lost somewhere in the distance between them. Matthew took it to be an instruction to keep going. He chose to navigate the curve on the outside, the furthest point from where the den of Cottonface was said to be. He saw nothing but polished tile walls, yet he felt no less uneasy. Solid wall or not, this part of the subway seemed much colder than the rest. He quickened his pace and disappeared into the gloom. Let me know when you're at the other side called Callum, his voice booming through the passageway. Matthew took this to mean that they could no longer see him from their side. I'm there now, he lied. A pause. I said I'm there. We heard you, shouted Callum again. Make your way back and make sure you say the rhyme when you get to the middle. Matthew did not respond. He'd never been on this side of the road before. He saw nothing in front of him but thick forest and a narrow, pebbled footpath. Yeah, came Callum's voice, annoyed. Yeah, replied Matthew, his voice wavering. The return leg of the journey was the part that he had dreaded the most. Some said the rhyme, some had caught in face. 
that was what had happened to little Marcy that day. Their playful game had summoned the demon from their playground stories, and he'd taken her with him back to hell. Today, called Callum, his tone impatient. Matthew started back and gingerly approached the curve of the tunnel. The suspected den of Cottonface now lay immediately to his left. The Steelers had abandoned their positions and had gathered at the mouth of the subway so that they had a better view. They glared at Matthew expectantly. He stopped in the center of the tunnel and began to recite the rhyme. It was a rhyme all the children in the village knew well, having learned it on the schoolyard at an early age. Passed from generation to generation, the ballad of Cotton Face would outlive them all. O'er field and day, across the way. Louder, interrupted Callum, his voice sounding distant and distorted. Matthew took a deep breath, realized his legs were trembling, and started again. O'er field and dale, across the way. The boy did perish, or so they say. His body torn, strewn o'er the place. Died at the hands of Cotton Face. Silence. Matthew stared at the crowd of boys. The group of boys stared back. Then, one by one, the lights illuminating the subway went out. Muffled cries of surprise emanated from the mouth of the subway, but sound impossibly far away. The passageway was thrown into total darkness, disorienting Matthew. He began to panic. A whimper of fear escaped his lips. To his left came sounds of movement. Something large was stirring, slowly, as though rousing from a deep sleep. His brain screamed at him to move, to run, to get away from this place as fast as he could. But his legs refused to move. They were heavy, detached, as though they weren't really his, as though they were somebody else's limbs sewn on in place of his own. A face emerged from the darkness in front of him, a pallid, terrible face with slits for eyes and a bloody-stained mouth. The stench of sewage filled the subway, fitted and damp. He coated his teeth and seeped into his lungs. Matthew, coughing violently, backed away from the face, suppressing the urge to throw up. His senses swam. He felt as though he was moving through treacle. The creature with the terrible face stood upright before him and hissed, its girth preventing him from passing. He could just about make out the panicked shout of the Steelers, impossibly far away, unwilling or unable to help. Cotton Face stared at the boy through the slits of his mask. The boy stared back. Although there were fifteen witnesses, all of whom gave mostly the same testimony. The body of Matthew Walters was never recovered. Not for the first time, nor sadly the last. The village of Lidford mourned the loss of one of its children. Counseling was offered to those present that night, though none of the boys chose to attend. It's said that children have remarkable powers of recovery when it comes to psychological trauma, and while many agree this to be true, perhaps there is a more telling indicator as to how the young process tragedy so readily.
The stories that we pass around the playground are often born of such horrors. Though often dressed in magic and fancy, these fairy tales serve as both a record of past tragedies and a warning. That we so often choose to ignore their warnings speaks more of our inherent childish curiosity than our fear of the unknown. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed Cotton Face by Dan Weatherer, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that first tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support them by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash weatherer. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash w-e-a-t-h-e-r-e-r. Dan's a very prolific author, and besides his contributions tonight... You'll also find a work by him in the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights Anthology, Volume 1, available on Amazon in paperback now, with ebook and audiobook coming soon. If you do decide to stop by the profile, please leave Dan a kind word and let him know you heard about him here on this show and that Otis sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. Oh, dear. Maybe trying to summon an old ghost just isn't a good idea. Why can't anyone just be more accepting of old, dirty murder hobos living down in old, dark tunnels and be happy with those? I know you like to listen, or else you wouldn't be here with me this evening. But what about reading? Depending on your tastes, you may notice that some writing is just, well better than others, but for some authors, that lesser writing is just misunderstood genius waiting to be discovered. If only there was a way to share it with as wide an audience as possible. In this next tale by Dan Weatherer, we meet an individual who thinks he's the next top talent and will do anything, and I mean anything, to get ahead. Without further ado, I present to you Signed. In some ways, it is terrifying to imagine just how close the town of Marshington came to obliteration by the tentacles of a demonic cephalopod. The end. 
It was finished. Months of toil had finally given way to Marty's latest masterpiece. Of his 18 novels to date, this was to be his finest. If 80,000 words detailing the horrific exploits of a demonic octopus residing in a quiet seaside aquarium didn't announce the arrival of Martin Murderstrom, his pen name of choice, on the international horror stage, then he was convinced that nothing would. Old one offspring was to be his magnum opus. Of course, Marty had held the same belief upon completion of his previous 17 self-published novels. His bestseller to date, the aptly titled Number Cruncher, a story about a murderer who only targeted chartered accountants, had sold six copies. The rest of his back catalog had not fared nearly so well. Yet Marty's belief in his work never faltered. Though his girlfriend had left him and his parents had kicked him out of their basement, still he clung to the dream of one day becoming a best-selling horror author. He checked his watch. 1.23 a.m. Just enough time to fire out a quick few emails to the agents that had taken the time to reject his previous works. He loaded up his usual email template and set to work. Dear, insert name here, my name's Martin Murdestrom, and I'm the savior of horror. Don't believe me? Then tweet your eyes to, insert title here, which is my latest tale of dread. It's about, enter a spine-chilling description here, and it'll blow your mind. I hope that we can work together. Yours confidently, Martin Murderstrom, visionary. With all 32 of his agent contacts emailed, Marty closed the laptop, fixed himself a glass of warm milk, and climbed into his single bed. On opening his inbox the following morning, Marty was greeted with 32 emails, all of which said the same thing. Thanks, but... No thanks. He sat for a while, blinking at the screen, unable to process what he was seeing. He received rejections before, and plenty of them, but they were in regards to inferior pieces. One old offspring was too damn good to be rejected out of hand. He wondered whether they'd even gotten past the front cover, which featured an illustrated octopus brooding in its tank, as couples and children passed it by, oblivious to the terror contained behind the inch of reinforced glass. No, he thought to himself, there's no way any of them even read it, not that quickly. As he munched his way through a half bowl of cornflakes, he worked out the beginnings of Plan B. This book deserved to be read, and by God, was he ever going to do whatever it took to get it noticed? It was time for a change of tact. Every approach he had previously made had been via email. This was the industry norm. Agents expected as such, but Marty felt that perhaps that was a tad impersonal. Each of his rejection emails contained the direct phone number to the agent, disregarding his work. Marty's plan was simple. He was to choose the agency he liked the sound of most and he'd speak to them directly. After much pondering, he decided upon McCluster and Luster, 
as it was the name that he liked the best in Dow their head office. Good morning, McCluster and Luster, said a cheery female voice on the other end of the phone. Ruth speaking, how may I direct your call? Marty took a deep breath. Well, good morning, Ruth. I was wondering, could I speak to Mr. McCluster, please? Or Mr. Luster? I don't mind which one, really. Whoever is free will do. That won't be possible, I'm afraid. Mr. McCluster died of polio in 1928, and Mr. Luster fell from a train in 1935. They founded the company in 1919. They don't actually work here. Ah, gulped Marty. They didn't say that on the website. No, it probably doesn't. I doubt many companies include the details of their founders' deaths as part of their online information. Some would deem the approach distasteful, replied Ruth, some of her initial cheeriness lost. Is there anybody else that you might wish to speak to? Yes, yes. Uh, bear with me for two seconds. Marty scrolled through his emails until he located the one needed. Could you pass me through to Mr. Alan Chambers then, please? And who shall I say is calling? Martin Murderstrom. The sound of a muffled laugh quickly cut into the jazz piece that the company had chosen as its hold music. After a minute of lazy snares and whirling saxophones, Alan Chambers spoke. Hello, Mr. Murderstrom. He sounded weary and in desperate need of coffee. Yes, uh, that's me. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Good morning. What is it that you want? Interrupted Alan. I have a busy morning ahead, and I'd prefer if we cut directly to the chase. Certainly, of course. It's about my book, Old One Offspring. Ah, yes, sighed Alan. The Possessed Octopus. Oh, you read it. Wait. He wasn't possessed. He was the son of... I read the blurb and decided to pass. Look, the truth is we have far too many authors like you on our books anyway. We simply don't have the time or resources to pick up another writer. Marty had been prepared for this response, as it was the one that cropped up most regularly in his email rejections. If you ask me, this seems to be an issue with all agents, don't you think? Tell me. If you always have full lists, then how does somebody new get onto your books? The line fell silent for a moment as Alan pondered how best to answer. Well, I imagine that when one of our authors retires from writing, that potentially frees up space for somebody new. In theory, anyway. Marty's eyes widened. That's all I needed to know, Mr. Chambers. Thank you for your time. No problem. Marty slammed the phone down and turned to his laptop. He clicked on the list of clients that McCluster and Luster represented and began to read. Clarice Huntington closed front cover and handed the book back to the elderly lady who stood in front of her. The book signing had seen a poor turnout, and although Checkley was her hometown, she had lowered her expectations accordingly. Now in the twilight of her career, and with nearly 30 books on horticulture to her name, the longest-serving author on McCluster and Luster's books was bored. Her passion for writing had withered long ago, and the draw of her celebrity as a local artist had started to wane. Oh, there you go, and thank you for coming in to see me today. I appreciate you making the journey out. Oh, it's no bother, replied the woman who had given her name as Ethel, 
I was in town anyway. I had to get some milk, and I saw your sign in the window. I didn't even know who you were until I saw your picture. I've read all of the books that you've done, one time or another. Tell me, which perennials can I plant in the shade? All the ones I try seem to need sun. Clarice rubbed her temples. This was a question that she was asked on an almost daily basis, and one she answered in every book. Chapter 4 will sort that little quandary out for you, said Clarice with a forced smile. And slugs. I'm forever battling with slugs. Chapter 8 for slugs. Ethel thanked her once again and waddled out into the high street, leaving Clarice, the bookstore attendant, and the young man who had spent the last half hour flickering through her back catalog, alone in the bookstore. Can I sign one of those for you? offered Clarice. The man placed the book that he was reading back onto the bookshelf and hurried out the door. I'll take that as a no, then. Clarice took a sip from her silver hip flask and returned her attention to her crossword puzzle. It was raining by the time Clarice had packed her unsold copies of Great Flowers of England into her wheeled trolley and started to walk home. She vowed to herself that she would not attend any more book signings and would push any further future sales online. She had seen the lines to meet her gradually dwindle into nothing, and this had slowly chipped away at both her desire to write and her self-confidence. As the rain fell harder, she quickened her pace across the cobbled streets, the squeak of her trolley wheels drowning out the sound of the footsteps that followed quickly behind her. She had not long taken off her coat when Clarice heard the knock on the door. Stood before her, sodden with rain, was the man who had fled the bookstore earlier. He smiled at her. Uh, Clarice hunting it? Yes, but I don't do doorstep signings, Sonny. I asked you earlier, and... I need your slot, said the man. You need my slot? repeated Clarice, confused. Yes, said the man with a smile. Then, in one smooth movement, the man took a pistol from his pocket and shot Clarice in the face. The phone was answered within three rings. Alan Chambers. Hi, Alan. It's Marty. How's it going? Marty, replied Alan as he moved to hang up. I don't recall anyone by that name. Sorry. Marty Murderstrom, the author of Old One Offspring? Listen. Ah, Mr. Murderstrom, sighed Alan, suddenly disinterested. I heard about Clarice Huntington, began Marty. Terrible business. Ah, yes, yes it was. We were all deeply saddened by her untimely death. To be gunned down on her doorstep like that. Awful, just awful, continued Marty. What was it, a, a gang hit? What? I mean, you hear about them all the time. Who knows what she was into? Who she owed money to? Of course it wasn't a gang hit, replied Alan. She wrote books on bloody shrubs. Hardly the type to be linked to hardened criminals. Look, is there a point to this call? Marty smiled. Straight to business. He liked that quality in Alan. Yes, yes, of course. Well... I was wondering, now you are an author, light. Perhaps you'd have space to add me to your roster. There followed a long and uneasy silence before Alan finally spoke. Mr. Murderstrom, 
I hardly think that now is the appropriate time to discuss such matters. Do you? One of our longest-serving authors, the longest-serving, interrupted Marty. The longest-serving author on our books was murdered in cold blood. Any notion of replacing her is so far removed from my mind as to be unimaginable. Now, if you'll excuse me. The line went dead and Marty hung up. It seemed to him that the shock of losing one author was not going to be enough for him to force his claim to be added to their client list and that further culling was to be required. Over the following months, the client list of McCluster and Luster decreased by a further twelve as more authors continued to turn up dead. There was the award-winning crime novelist Horace Witter, whose car had left the road at high speed and ended up at the bottom of a ravine. Romance writer Carol Shucker was found crumpled at the bottom of a public stairway, her neck broken. Then there was the acclaimed fantasy author Greg Maiden, who was found floating in Lake Windermere after going missing during a fishing trip. At first it was assumed that their deaths were accidental, but as the number of dead writers soared, so did the attention of the media, and it was declared that a serial killer was at large, one that solely preyed upon successful authors. The press quickly labeled the killer as the author offer. Marty was on hold. Alan Chambers was refusing to take his calls, and so, while a jazz rendition of The Right Stuff entertained him, the receptionist at McCluster and Luster frantically searched for somebody to take his call. Miley Wilson, a voice, spoke, tinged with apprehension. Ah, at last. Thank you for taking my call. My name is... Yes, I, I know who you are, Mr. Murderstrom. You are quite the persistent caller by all accounts. How can I help you today? Marty launched into a sales pattern. Picture this bold and terrifying tale about how maggots that fell to Earth from space are reanimating the dead. What do you think? Miley sighed. So you mean to write a zombie novel? Not just any zombie novel. THE zombie novel. You see, it's all about the maggots from space. They're radioactive and they bring the dead back to life while they feast on them. Sort of like tiny puppet masters. Do you see? I see a zombie novel. Another zombie novel. But this one is different because of the mag... The maggots, yeah, yes, I know, interrupted Miley. Look, the major problem with your genre of choice is that horror is kind of already taken. And what I mean by that is... You have Simon Dukes, who almost has the entire horror audience to himself. I'm afraid there's just no room for someone with your... Uh, talent. Simon Dukes was a master of dark fiction. Crowned the Duke of Horror, he penned such greats as Cassie, The Shimmering, and That. His novel count stretched into the high 30s, and his work had inspired a generation of authors and filmmakers alike. When it came to market dominance, it was the Duke who sat at the top of the horror tree. So you see, Miley continued, you are always going to be up against him, and frankly, nobody with an interest in horror 
reads anyone but him. You're a no-go, I'm afraid. Perhaps try your hand at fan fiction and self-pub. Marty hung up. He'd heard enough. There was no way he was going to lower himself to writing fan fiction for a living. He had a heart for horror, a dark heart, that beat with a defiant thud. If the Duke was stifling all of the competition, perhaps it was time to stifle the Duke. Simon Dukes was a tall, slight, speckled man. If you didn't know your horror and you passed him on the street, you could easily mistake him for someone worthy of little note. To look at his outward appearance is to miss the might of the person. For within him worked an imagination so vivid that he'd been cited as the greatest storyteller of the modern age. Simon was happy with that accolade and quietly continued to churn out a steady stream of novels. Some of his critics argued that his best stories had already been told, but a book with his name on the cover was a guaranteed sell, and talk of unit sales soon hushed any mutterings of a loss of form. There came a knock on his study door, followed by the entrance of his personal assistant, Grace. Sorry to interrupt, Simon. I've got an English journalist on the phone wanting to talk to you. Simon closed his laptop and took off his glasses. Even without him, he could tell that Grace looked fabulous today. What's his name? Ernest Gamal. Does that name sound familiar? Simon shook his head. No. How'd he get my number? No idea, shrugged Grace. But he's pushing for an interview. He gave me a list of credentials a mile long. I can check them out if you like. Nah, it's okay. Pass them to me. I'll have a look through. English, you say. I've got a book release coming up soon. Couldn't hurt to get my face in the UK press again. Grace nodded. It is a little quiet on the promotional front. Shall I arrange a phone call? Have him come over here. If he's legit, his agency won't mind the airfare. Say, next Wednesday, 11 a.m.? Grace nodded again and disappeared into her office. Something about the name journalist irked Simon. It swam in and out of his consciousness, vying for his attention. Perhaps Ernest, the English journalist, could meet a grisly end in my next book. Recognizing this to be the seed of an idea, he closed the news site that he'd been reading. After all, the last thing he wanted on his mind when trying to write was the news that there was a serial killer at large who only targeted successful authors. Marty knocked on the large oak double doors and waited. The house was bigger than he had imagined. Photographs taken from the fringes of the property and posted online really didn't convey the sheer size of the place. This was a man who truly made a success of his writing. Marty shook the fuzz from his head and popped a handful of caffeine pills into his mouth. The flight had been long, and he knew he needed his wits about him if he was to kill the Duke in his own home. The door opened, and there stood Simon Dukes, wearing a beige jumper and a pair of black sweatpants. Mr. Gamal, I presume. Marty swallowed the pills and thrust his hand towards the man in the black sweatpants, who denied him the chance of literary greatness. Indeed, indeed. Call me Ernie, please. Wow, Simon Dukes is shaking my hand. Who'd have thought it? 
Simon withdrew his hand and regarded the journalist. Who indeed? Please come in. Ernie pushed past Simon and entered the grand hallway. This way, please, said Simon, frowning. We'll conduct the interview in my study, if that's okay. Of course, said Marty, taking in his lavish surroundings. Wherever you feel most comfortable. Tell me, are you in alone? Well, as it happens, I am, replied Simon, and he ushered Marty into his study. My PA is in town. She should be back shortly after lunch. Simon took a seat behind his desk and folded his hands together. Are you ready to begin? Sure am, replied Marty. Simon shot Marty a puzzled look. Are you sure? You don't seem to have a notepad or anything to hand. It, um, it all goes in here, said Marty, tapping his head. I've got an excellent memory. Don't worry, I'll get it all word for word. Simon smiled, if you say so. Where shall I begin? Did you have any questions in mind, perhaps, relating to my new book? Marty's eyes darted around the office, looking for a quick escape. His stomach had nodded, and he suddenly felt sick. Being in the presence of greatness had made him unsure of himself. This uh, wasn't an old deer who wrote about pansies for a living. This was the Duke. All the plans he had made in his head on the flight over about how to kill Simon bled and muddled into one another. Now he wasn't sure he wanted to kill him. Never, never mind, if he could. Sure, sure. Tell me about that, said Marty, his voice hoarse. Simon stood, the smile disappearing from his face. You seem a little nervous. Tell you what, I'll fix you something to drink. How's that sound? Marty nodded and realized that he was sweating. Just the water, please. Coming up, I'll be right back. As the door closed behind Simon, Marty grabbed at his tie and loosened it. I can hardly breathe in here. What's the matter with me? The office was large and airy, with a window that overlooked a vast front lawn and an extravagant water fountain. The wall to the left of him was lined with books. He noted with disappointment that none of his titles numbered among them. Simon returned carrying a glass of water, which he handed to Marty. Try that. It should fix you right up. Cheers, said Marty, taking a sip. Bottoms up. Simon smiled as he retook his seat and turned his attention to his laptop screen. So, I did a little digging around online to see who you'd written about previously. Oh, said Marty, suddenly feeling lightheaded. It seems that I'm your first real interview, Mr. Gamal. Would that be correct? Marty tried to raise his hand, but the effort was beyond him. His head dropped and his chin rested on his chest. That's not so, is what he wanted to say, but what emerged from his throat was a low groaning sound. Simon rose from his chair and grabbed Marty by the hair, forcing his head backward. He leaned in close and whispered, I know who you are. That was the last thing Marty had heard before he blacked out. The sound of humming and beeping filled Marty's head as he gently came to. His eyes fluttered open and he found himself looking up at a fluorescent light which hurt his eyes and his head. To his left sat a monitor that was the source of the incessant noise. 
It seemed to be recording his vital sounds, though as he watched the thin green line trace peaks and troughs on the tiny LCD screen, Marty was confused as to why that might be. He tried to sit up, but a great pressure on his chest and arms prevented him from doing so. His head felt as though it was full of cotton wool, and he had begun to notice a dull ache in his groin. He heard a door open to his right and turned his head to see Simon enter the room. There were no windows and only one door. Marty's pulse quickened and the monitor beeped and chirped, noting his rising fear. He tried to speak, but his tongue felt fat and heavy. Awake at last, I see, began Simon. I guess the procedure took it out of you. Mind you, it did take much longer than I had first anticipated. Marty tried to speak again, but he could only manage a nonsensical, guttural noise. I guess that's the thing with research. Until you do something for yourself, you'll never know how long something like that takes, or indeed, what emotions it inspires within you. The door to Marty's right opened again, and he heard a female voice, light and matter-of-fact. He survived the procedure, then? Yes, he did. You did a great job bandaging him up, replied Simon. I honestly thought we'd lost him, what with the amount of blood he pumped out onto the floor. If you need any suturing or IV packs, give me a shout, okay? Of course, Grace. Thank you. Marty heard the door close and the retreat of rapid-heeled footsteps. After lingering upon the door for a while, Simon returned his attention to the screen monitoring Marty's vital signs. Yes, you're doing quite well, considering. Marty's groin pain increased sharply, and he let out a mournful cry. Oh, you want to know what I've done to you? I suppose you are aware enough to appreciate my labor now. Hold on, said Simon, disappearing out of the room. He returned moments later, carrying two large, badly wrapped pieces of bloodied meat. You see, I figured out who you are, continued Simon. He placed one of the hunks of meat onto the floor and began to unwrap the other. That's the thing about writing horror. You see things in people that most don't. Of course, I checked your non-existent credentials, and I saw the reports on the Internet. He paused and looked at Marty. You're the killer who targets authors, am I right? Marty tried to protest his innocence, but his tongue still refused to work. The pain in his groin had become so intense, he was close to blacking out again. Simon continued with the unwrapping of the meat. No matter, I, I know it was you. I had to take certain measures to contain you. I hope you forgive me. One cannot be too careful with a killer in the house. As the last of the wrapping fell to the floor, Simon held up the meat for Marty to see. It was a leg, one of Marty's legs. Marty's cries caught in his throat. His heart thundered and his groin screamed. Simon tossed the leg aside and leaned in close. It's amazing what you can accomplish with a hacksaw and a bit of effort. You won't believe this, but the blade cut through bone as though with butter. Now this does mean that you won't be going anywhere now. Nobody knows you're here and nobody's going to miss you. I've done the world a favor keeping you here. I'm going to make an educated guess. You write, don't you? Blink once for no, twice for yes. 
Through a veil of sweat and tears, Marty blinked twice. Good, I figured as much. Why else would you target authors who had experienced the success that you craved so dearly? Simon placed a firm hand on Marty's shoulders. Never fear, my friend. I have great plans for you. For us. Over the next few months, Simon Dukes experienced a purple patch, the likes of which no author could ever hope to emulate. Book after the book hit the shelves, and his fans lapped them up in their thousands. His critics were astounded, and though they didn't much care for the tale of the demonic octopus that terrified visitors to a small-town aquarium, nor did they appreciate another zombie novel, even if it did contain space maggots, none could argue that they were experiencing the renaissance of a true master at work. I hope you enjoyed Signed by Dan Weatherer, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed the tales you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash weatherer. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash w-e-a-t-h-e-r-e-r. He's among 29 other authors showcased in Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, Volume 1 a collection of modestly short stories based on past legends. And his tale of a house with an unpleasant tenant will hopefully leave you as sleepless as, well, as much as the other stories in the book. Available now in paperback with ebook and audiobook coming soon. As a reminder, if you decide to give any of this talented author's stories a read, Please consider leaving him a quality review and a kind word, or a thoughtful public comment and an upvote. And be sure to let them know you heard about them here on this program, and that Otis sent you. It means more to me than you can imagine, and I'm sure Dan would much appreciate it as well. Thanks again for your support of this show, and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go... I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. It's been a long and interesting ten seasons, and we're looking forward to presenting more works of the macabre and the monstrous in episodes to come. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference, and it would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring Twice the Terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast or our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook 
Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube. You can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyrie channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Gyrie. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs>
Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.